1973, a man named Ernst Friedrich Schumacher published a book, a collection of essays called Small is Beautiful. The book is jam-packed with ideas about the economy, human relationships, work, and the environment. He was a great interdisciplinary thinker. He had an active and precocious curiosity about the world. And it's one of the great ironies that the title which gave it so much success, Small is Beautiful, was actually forced onto Schumacher um, against his will. That's the writer Andrew Sims. He says Schumacher didn't want to call his book Small is Beautiful because he was concerned that his philosophy would be reduced to a meaningless catchphrase. He was never saying that um, everything should be small. He poses the question that if we were explicitly organizing the economy to create the most convivial ways of living for people, what would it look like? What should be the purpose of the economy? It's there in the subtitle for the book, Economics as if people mattered. Schumacher's primary concern wasn't smallness, but scale. He had an analysis that one of our great failings in terms of thinking about economics and the organization of economic life was a failure to address the question of scale and appropriateness of scale. So the great thing about Small is Beautiful is that it does give you this lens. And when you look through that lens of scale, you see a vision of a more convivial economy that is much more rooted in the real world than the world of business as we've come to see it over the last 20 or 30 years. When we look through Schumacher's lens, Sim says, we can clearly see the problems with the dominant economic idea of our time, growth there's been this sort of consolidation around one narrow economic theory which is so completely centred on the inevitability and the logic of economic growth that it seems to have driven out all other things. And there is something very strange and something very weird in the way in which economics has come to take growth for granted and to depend upon it. And what we forget, of course, is that it's a very bizarre man-made thing, because if you look around in the natural world, I mean, yes, you have growth, but then it tends to level out. And one of the great examples that um, we've thrown out, just as a, shall we say, um, very graphic illustration, is if you take a sort of a, a, a small animal like a, like a hamster, which doubles its weight each week from birth up to the age of about six or seven weeks, but, but then stops and asks the question, what would happen if it didn't stop? Well, we did a little bit of number crunching and came to the conclusion that on its first birthday, you'd have a nine billion ton hamster that in a single day would eat the entire corn production of the world for a year. Schumacher was certain that the notion of economic growth was an extremely dangerous idea. In 1973, he predicted that our obsession with big would lead to the destruction of nature's equilibrium. He wants us to heed something he called the wisdom of smallness. There's a wonderful short passage in the book, actually, um, in which he tries to put into context his thinking about big versus small. And what he says is, and this is taken straight from his words, there is a wisdom in smallness, if only on account of the smallness and patchiness of human knowledge, which relies on experiment far more than on understanding. The greatest danger, he writes, invariably arises from the ruthless application on a vast 
scale of partial knowledge, such as we're currently witnessing in the application of nuclear energy, of the new chemistry in agriculture, of transportation technology, and countless other things. It's this idea that, um, you know, at, at, the, at the small scale, even when things go wrong, they can be relatively inoffensive. So, you know, if a firework goes off badly, that's one thing. Um, if a cruise missile or a cluster bomb goes off badly, that's another. And I think that's one of the things, is this idea that um, if you like the economy and how we live on the planet is an ongoing experiment with emergent consequences. And if you gamble everything, um, and one might say that the, the economics of growth at all costs um, is kind of a roll of the dice that people hope that we will be able to hold everything together. They hope that we will come up with techno fixes to mend the environment when we push beyond environmental thresholds. And it's one great big experiment. And I think one of Schumacher's great insights is to say that that's an incredibly dangerous thing to do. If a business goes bankrupt, you can set up elsewhere. If the biosphere, if the ecosystems upon which you depend um, are bankrupted through over-exploitation, well, there might be no coming back from that. He saw a number of things really, really clearly, and the tragedy is that 40 years later, we are still no nearer solving them. In fact, many, many respects were even further. The Guardian's Madeleine Bunting recently spent some time looking at our world through Schumacher's lens. And what's striking, she told me, is not that we are now totally obsessed with the idea of economic growth, just as Schumacher prophesied, but rather how we've come to live as if there's no alternative. We've heard loads for 15 years, there is no alternative. Tina, there is no alternative. And the result is that the economic problems are so acute because our political institutions have never really kind of understood the uh, scale that Schumacher talked about. Perhaps Schumacher should have put up a better fight with his publisher about that title, because Bunting sees evidence that consumer capitalism actually did turn it into a meaningless catchphrase. In consumer culture, the idea of small is beautiful has been taken up by the marketeers. It got hijacked. I mean, you can pick a whole number of radical uh, enterprises that emerged in the 70s and 80s that were picking up on Schumacher's ideas, and the body shop is an obvious example. But Ben and Jerry's ice cream would be another one where they wanted a, a scale of enterprise which put people and their relationship with the environment back into centre stage. And of course, where are all these brands now? They've been bought over, bought up by the corporations. Bunting says Schumacher's ideas about the workplace and our need for more meaningful relationships of scale also were hijacked by managerial theorists. Management theorists kind of clocked what Schumacher was getting at, which is that if you want to motivate really exceptional levels of effort, you have to create small units of organisation. And that's how, in the course of the 70s, you know, Schumacher's idea was fed into the way in which management theory developed to engineer the kind of manic lifestyles of your, your kind of professional elite. They all work crazy hours. But while managers and marketers may have made off with Schumacher's title, his critique of economic growth has retained its radical power. And according to Bunting, it can also free us from the deadly trap we've constructed for ourselves. What he is saying is that gigantism, that's this word he coined, 
degrades and dehumanizes people. I and mean, what I keep being struck by in the book is that this is really a passionate philosophical tract as much as it's about economics or the, uh, the environment. It's absolutely rooted in an understanding of human nature. One of the main things he says is a growth in, in the economy does not actually end up making people happier. You know, if, you're, if you have loads of kind of consumer durables, et cetera, it, it's not actually going to make you happy. Materialism is, you know, is just going to take us on a hiding to nowhere. The trap we've got ourselves into is that people have to spend, they have to consume if the economy is going to get going again. So it's that awful, awful paradox which we saw after uh, 9-11 and we saw it in the UK, which is it's become a sort of civic duty to shop well, you know, that there we really are trapped. And I encourage you all to go shopping more. Over the last decade, the global economy has taken a number of hits. Terrorism, recession, war. And on many occasions, our leaders have, as Madeleine Bunting noted, pushed us to go shopping. But after the attacks in 9-11, when George Bush made an appeal to Americans to do some patriotic spending, Photographer Brian Ulrich couldn't believe his ears. And at first, there's this moment of like, did I really hear that? Like, is that actually, that is just like the most unsustainable way to approach any problem. Ulrich spent eight years traveling around the United States with his camera, documenting America's attempt to shop its way out of the problem. In his new book, Is This Place Great or What?, Ulrich presents us with photographs of patriotic retail displays, alienated shoppers, and dead malls. The retail industry actually refers to a lot of these spaces as dark stores or ghost boxes or dead malls. And I thought, like, wonderfully (laughs) cryptic and ironic that they would choose these death terms. In a way, it's as if Ulrich is using Schumacher's lens in his work because his photographs expose the flawed logic of economic growth. I've been to some malls that were absolutely phenomenally designed. The, the interiors are at, like really wonderful, and they're completely empty just because they kept expanding the space. Because really the equation was like, the more retail space, the more money. The problem with that, though, is that the expectation is that the store's profits will always increase. Every year, it must get better. I happened upon Ulrich's book as I was rereading Schumacher, and so his images of empty, deserted shopping malls came to perfectly illustrate for me the folly of believing in something like never-ending growth. But what Schumacher really wants us to understand in Small is Beautiful is that this folly will only lead to our extinction. In 2009, as Brian Ulrich was working on his project, one of America's largest big-box retail chains, Circuit City, went bankrupt. Ulrich photographed a number of them for his book, and stripped of their signage and color, he shows us what was there all along. It's almost as it's like trying to pretend that it never was the thing that it is, which is so obvious, a tombstone.
In the early 1980s, a man named Warren Samuels began collecting documents that mentioned the phrase, the invisible hand. Books, journal articles, um, newspaper articles, cartoons, anything that mentioned the invisible hand. When he first took up the project, Warren Samuels was a professor of economics at Michigan State University. He noticed that both the governments of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher regularly invoked this idea of an invisible hand. That's Adam Smith's theory that markets can self-regulate themselves, and which later became the founding justification for laissez-faire economic philosophy. Warren Samuel's initial plan was to use this concept of the invisible hand as the basis for a book about the role of government in the economic system. The only problem was he couldn't stop collecting. When he retired in 1998, he was still at it. His wife was enormously tolerant and uh, supportive in all of this. Uh, he took over first their basement uh, when they lived in East Lansing, and then later when they moved to Florida in his retirement, uh, he took over the garage and then one guest bedroom and then a second guest bedroom. Marianne Johnson was one of Warren Samuel's final students in the mid-1990s, and last year, as he struggled with Parkinson's, he asked her to help him finish what had become his life's work, a book about the myth of the invisible hand. He worked so hard uh, finishing this, and it really took a lot of his energy and effort uh, toward the end. This was something that he just had to do. Warren Samuels tragically passed away last August, just weeks before Cambridge University Press published his book, Erasing the Invisible Hand. At the heart of Samuels' book is a question. How does a concept like an invisible hand come to dominate the scientific discipline of economics? Economics is the only field where uh, practitioners pride themselves in having something invisible as a foundational concept. And he thought this was just a wonderful puzzle. It was the philosopher Adam Smith who gave birth to the idea of the invisible hand, even though he only mentioned it three times in his writing. The first instance, in his book The History of Astronomy, is considered to have no bearing on economics and thus generally is ignored. But for Warren Samuels, it was one of the keys to solving the puzzle of the invisible hand. If you look at the first use of the invisible hand in Smith's essay in The History of Astronomy, he talks about uh, how people uh, need to have concepts or ways of organizing the world that will put their mind at rest and soothe their imagination. And the invisible hand is one of these things that can kind of wave away some of the difficulties in explaining uh, what's observed in the real world. And so what Warren really liked about the history of astronomy and the use of the invisible hand there is because he felt uh, Smith's idea of science was the way to, you know, soothe the imagination. Hmm, let me think, think about that one. Emin Butler went blue in the face when I asked him if the invisible hand could be thought of as a soothing balm to explain forces beyond man's comprehension. I don't think the invisible hand is, is a doctrine of faith. But that's understandable, considering Emin Butler is one of the founders of the Adam Smith Institute, a conservative think tank committed to spreading the gospel of the free market. For Emin Butler, the key to understanding the invisible hand is Smith's third reference to the term in his 1776 book, The Wealth of Nations. Adam Smith says that if you allow people to trade freely, then you get, as if by an invisible hand, a very uh, beneficial social outcome. 
And this is a very novel idea. If you let people get on with their own lives, in, in, in trying to improve their own life, they also improve life for other people. And that's the, really the idea of the invisible hand. Uh, and this comes through every page of, of, of his book. Now, Adam Smith, in fact, mentions the invisible hand only once in The Wealth of Nations. Emin Butler sees it on almost every page because he says Smith illuminates the invisible hand in the stories and parables he tells about markets. Smith takes the example of the ordinary woolen coat that is worn by a humble, poor uh, worker. And he says that uh, to manufacture that coat actually requires the effort and enterprise of thousands of people. Uh, there are shepherds who grow the wool, uh, weavers, uh, carders, dyers, spinners, tool makers, carriers, people who make the tools. Adam Smith was convinced he discovered a force, an invisible force that not only coordinated all of the diverse economic activity, but more so drove this collective activity. For Emin Butler, this is the invisible hand of the market. They don't do it uh, because they want to produce a woolen coat for a particular worker. They do it because they benefit from the whole enterprise. The invisible hand is, is a way of explaining how what would seem to be self-interest, and some people would even say greed, actually produces a beneficial um, social outcome. But this idea that the invisible hand works in the interests of society through individuals working in their own interest is perhaps better stated by Adam Smith in his second mention of the phrase in an essay he wrote in 1759 called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. He wrote, The rich consume little more than the poor, and in spite of their natural selfishness and rapacity, though they mean only their own conveniency, though the sole end which they propose from the labors of all the thousands whom they employ be the gratification of their own vain and insatiable desires, they divide with the poor the produce of all their improvements. They are led by an invisible hand to make nearly the same distribution of the necessaries of life which would have been made had the earth been divided into equal portions among all its inhabitants. And thus, without intending it, without knowing it, advance the interest of the society. It's the old trickle-down theory, which is that the very rich will employ lots of people making their baubles or sewing their carpets or hoeing their fields, and that the wealth will spread out. Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee prefers to use slang when referring to this theory. And she says there's overwhelming evidence that proves the trickle-down theory is rubbish. In the US, in the UK, in the last 30 years, the story has been irrefutably trickling up. The wealth has been sucked from the middle and below and accumulated in the top 1% of unbelievably rich people who've consumed the wealth from the tables of middle, middle income and below families. For Polly Toynbee, the only reason this idea still has any political power is because governments cower before the rich. We have a government that's transfixed with terror that the rich might leave this country, that uh, our wealth, though it turned out to be a bubble, and our growth of the last 15 years was because London was the great magnet for international jet-setting global wealth, so we let them pay virtually no taxes, not even on the massive properties they brought. The fear of the flight of the rich uh, dominates governments. 
But for Emin Butler and other disciples of Adam Smith, taxes and regulations placed on the wealthy or on industry keep the invisible hand of the market from functioning properly. And this is why they are ideologically opposed to them. If you allow uh, industries to self-regulate, then the system will work. But it won't work if it's over-regulated from the center. The Great Crash of 2008, Emin Butler argues, is an example of what happens when regulations interfere with the invisible hand of the market. A lot of people's faith in markets was uh, um, given a knock by the financial crisis, and that's perfectly understandable. But I think that uh, people are now realizing that what we had was a banking sector which was hugely regulated. It wasn't the case that there was too little regulation. There was plenty of it. People say that there wasn't enough regulation, but that's completely wrong. If you're inside a myth, it seems like fact. The philosopher John Gray, like the economist Warren Samuels, is also fascinated by the myth of the invisible hand. He says free market ideologues like Emin Butler still cling to this myth, even in the face of overwhelming evidence that the crash was caused by unregulated markets spinning out of control because myths have more power than facts. So, I mean, one of the things one can learn from the history of ideas is that Myths of this kind are never abandoned because they're refuted. They're never abandoned because they're obviously false. They're only abandoned when the uh, structures of power that sustain them in society become dislocated and then those who hold to them simply become ridiculous. But in promoting this myth of the invisible hand, John Gray says, Adam Smith's disciples fail him. The original version of the idea of the invisible hand in economic life is, of course, found in Adam Smith. But it's quite different from what it later became because one of the key insights that's been forgotten about markets, an insight that Adam Smith had but his disciples have lost, is that markets are like all other human institutions. They're prone to go mad from time to time. They're no more uh, uh, perfect, no more rational, no more liable to regulate themselves than any other human institution. And if you start from that basis, uh, which Smith did, um, you might still favor a market economy, as he did, but you would favor it in a full awareness of its defects and limitations and of the fact that it needs an awful lot of infrastructure, legal and moral, for it to work properly. The world is still reeling from the market failures of the past few years. But for John Gray, the real failure was one of thinking. And a failure of thinking, he warns, always comes with grave consequences. Because this myth of the self-regulating market, the invisible hand, has hit the buffers, all kinds of new movements are, or old movements under new forms are emerging, and many of them are toxic, xenophobia, hatred of internal and external minorities, anti-Semitism, the classical toxic poisons. That's what always happens, or tends almost invariably to happen, when a ruling myth of this kind, in this case a sort of secular myth of economic improvement, is not intellectually challenged but uh, shaken by events. I think the one thing we can be sure of is it wouldn't be uh, a rational rebirth of social democracy.
man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. This uh, is a great start to any book. This sentence is probably one of the most famous sentences of Rousseau. It is like a kind of atomic bomb against everything that is against freedom and liberty. Man is born free, but everywhere he is in chains. That's one of the opening lines from The Social Contract by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And even though it's the one line of his you're most likely to find on a bumper sticker or a t-shirt, it's also a pretty great starting point for his ideas about society, nature, and freedom. This first sentence is actually a key sentence to understand Rousseau. 2012 is the tricentennial, the 300th anniversary of Rousseau's birth. It's a busy year if you're a Rousseau scholar. Symposium after symposium. That's Paul Audi, a French Rousseau scholar and writer. I met up with him at his studio in Paris. He told me that most of Rousseau's big ideas are actually packed into this phrase, including his concept of the autonomous natural man. In this sentence, you have uh, this idea of a special kind of relation to nature that gives us freedom at the beginning. The meaning of freedom for Rousseau is autonomy. Rousseau's revolutionary thinking is to say, we were free, we were autonomous, and we were happy in this natural condition. And Denise Tunney is another busy Rousseau scholar. She teaches at New York University in the States, but like Paul Adi, I caught up with her in Paris, in between Rousseau's symposiums. Rousseau, she told me, gave birth to an entirely new definition of freedom, and its flesh and blood embodiment is what he calls natural man. Rousseau defines, and that's extremely new, and he's the first philosopher to ever do that, he defines natural man as a man who is totally self-sufficient. For him, the natural man lives in, you know, inside the forest, alone, but in complete harmony with the natural world around him. Therefore, he doesn't depend on anybody. For Rousseau, the key notion which guarantees man's freedom at every single stage of his evolution is autonomy or self-sufficiency. He invents, in a way, the question of the autonomy. Uh, Rousseau is the, uh, the inventor of this big idea that, that shaped our modernity. But when natural man leaves the forest for society, he gives up his freedom. And Denise Tunney says that we are always aware of this every moment of our lives. In order to eat, I'm going to need today to go to a supermarket, buy the food, means I'm depending on a structure of production of food, uh, <laughs> traveling of food, I need money to buy it. Suddenly I'm not free anymore. I'm in a system where I'm already conditioned to behave in certain ways. And for Rousseau, this is the lack of freedom. We have lost autonomy. Now, when I first sat down with Anne and turned on my recorder, I asked her to read our Rousseau sentence so I could use it in this podcast. But she changed one of the key words. Uh, all men are born free and are everywhere alienated. Alienation, she says, is a better word choice because it makes it clear just how visionary Rousseau is. We don't live, hopefully, we don't live in, a, in societies today where chains exist anymore, but 
We live in societies where we are submitted to many different forms of alienations. And Rousseau is actually extraordinary uh, uh, visionary because he, he actually analyzes in a very deep way um, the different forms of our alienation. And alienation, he defines it to be alienated is to give or to sell. And he says no man can sell himself or be sold because that would mean a negation of what makes him or her a human being, which is precisely his or her freedom. So alienation for Rousseau is really something that is in a way contradictory with the term of um, human being. What characterizes human being for Rousseau is really freedom. Paul Adi also believes that our sentence showcases Rousseau's visionary powers. But for him, the key word is everywhere. What is interesting in this sentence particularly is not the uh, distinction between uh, state of nature and state of society, but it is the little word everywhere. Everywhere. This little word is... Uh, concentrate in itself the polemic power of this sentence. There is not any place on earth where chains don't um, bind human beings. Not one place. Man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. One thinks himself the master of others and still remains a greater slave than they. How did this change come about? I do not know. What can make it legitimate? That question, I think I can answer. When I read the whole beginning to the social contract, what jumps out at me is not that Rousseau was down with alienation before alienation was even a thing, or even that he recognized its coming total domination of social man, but rather his confidence and that he can answer the big question. The question is for him the political question how we can uh, combine authority and freedom. How is it is possible to deal with a kind of authority that is the, the principle of an order and still be free? So this is the major political question. And it is the question that is raised and developed and answered in the uh, social contract. The, the question is how to define ways in which autonomy or self-sufficiency can be guaranteed in social life. And he does it in three texts. He does it in L'Emile. In L'Emile, he defines an education which guarantees autonomy and self-sufficiency. It's an education based on nature in order to preserve the rights of nature. Then he defines in, in his most famous novel, uh, The New Eloise, you know, a form of political organization or familial organization where basically there's a form of autonomy. But then in the social contract, which is in a way the conclusion of the system, it's the political solution to that problem, how to guarantee citizens self-sufficiency and autonomy. And, and it's guaranteed for Rousseau by what the concept he creates of the general will. Through the general will, Rousseau believes man, social man, can regain his freedom. It, it establishes 
a political organization in which each of us is autonomous and free to exercise his own power. The general will allows man to be autonomous because it makes him both the subject and the object of his law. But it only works when people come together to actively participate in the general will. Being a citizen is not something that is given once and for all. It is something that has to be always recreated by the participation to the general will, to the expression of the general will. This is how civil liberty is preserved. Today, no one really takes seriously Rousseau's blueprint for how the general will could actually be put into practice. It's possible that no one ever really did. But the driving force behind his idea completely changed political thinking. What's still very revolutionary in the social contract is this idea that the people should be totally sovereign, that there's nothing, there's no authority, no law beyond the general will, meaning the people itself. And that's totally revolutionary, totally modern. I mean, the extraordinary proposition that the people itself should be self-sufficient politically, autonomous politically, and should not be represented by anybody but itself, in itself is a complete revolution in the history of political philosophy. So for this, Rousseau remains even today, you know, very much a, a revolutionary. You know, as a, as a political philosopher, Rousseau has been largely discredited. It's very, very difficult to, to come up with a practical application of the idea of the general will. Uh, but it's not for nothing, I think, that uh, Immanuel Kant um, called Rousseau the, the Newton of the moral sciences. Guy Deman writes about music for The Guardian. He's more interested in Rousseau's ideas about aesthetics and moral philosophy than the social contract. And, he says, Rousseau's writings on the moral sphere provide us with a path towards our lost freedom. Something is very, very important, which is at the heart of uh, what Rousseau was talking about, which is this link between the idea of freedom and the idea of part active participation in the moral sphere. If there's one kind of area in which we know or we, we come into emotional awareness of how free we are as human beings, um, it is when we make active moral choices. It's when we, we, we go against the grain of, of whatever it is that um, our instinctual or socially mediated responses would have us do. Uh, and these events are quite rare, but they're quite, um, they're quite character-forming, they're, uh, they're quite individuating in a, in a powerful way. One of the, the very interesting things, I think, about what Rousseau said um, about art and music um, was that his entire interest in art and music was that it would be a, some kind of agency for the development of our compassionate nature. Um, so he had a, you know, a, a, a quite a sophisticated, um, polemically uh, expressed aesthetic philosophy, um, which was entirely predicated on the idea that we need music, we need art that that encourages this side of ourselves. Um, and that was, his, that was his big emphasis, particularly in music. He thought music was the, the art form which took us, was the closest one to take us back 
to something similar to the set of sensibilities we had in the state of nature. It's the one he found the origin of music in the idea of the cry of the suffering other. Um, he, he writes very movingly about these, these kind of scenes. Music was one of Rousseau's first passions and ambitions. And while his writings long ago eclipsed his compositions, his music is still performed today. This is an excerpt from a work called La Dienne du Village. In the new Roman Polanski film, Carnage, two New York City couples come together after their sons have an after-school brawl. Christoph Waltz plays one of the fathers, Alan, a tough-talking attorney whose cell phone buzzes every five minutes. And he takes every call, much to the dismay of the others. Can you hear me now? Eventually, his wife dumps his cell phone into a vase of water. And just like that, Alan slumps to the ground. It's as if the phone was powering him. My whole life was in there. It's a graphic example of an idea popularized by the German philosopher Friedrich Kittler. He says we humans are not the masters of our technology, but rather its subjects. Kittler made us realize Technology is irremissible. There's no off switch to technology, nor is there a technologically free zone where one wouldn't be um, an app or something that is already um, plugged into a larger technological um, circuitry. That's the philosopher Avital Ronel. I met up with her in New York just as she returned from speaking at Kittler's funeral. He passed away earlier this year. I didn't expect the coffin to be right there next to me, so it was um, a more traumatic and fresher experience than I might have anticipated. Friedrich Kittler is often called the Derrida of the digital age. This was mainly due to his championing of French thinkers like Foucault, Lacan, Derrida. Kittler is also firmly rooted in the German tradition, He's an intellectual heir of both Heidegger and Hegel. But his ideas about media and technology are completely his own. According to Ronell, the path to understanding Kittler begins with understanding his rejection of humanist conceptions of media, like the one popularized by Marshall McLuhan, who famously said media was an extension of the self. I think he was dismayed by, by the uninterrogated premises that McLuhan left vacant. For example, McLuhan, if he's talking about an extension of the self, he doesn't question the self. He assumes a self, an intact self. 
Whereas for Friedrich, ideologies of self, of country, of, of all sorts of entities that used to be honored and left intact were all subjected to and deformed by the technological encroachment. Radio, cinema, the internet, typewriters, gramophones. For Friedrich Kittler, none of these are extensions of man. Rather, man is the extension of technology. Our, our entire psychical apparatus, as Freud calls it, is determined by certain um, um, technological borrowings. When you say you're having a good time, you're borrowing from the lexicon of technological being. You're having a blast. Uh, something turns you on or turns you off. You know, even our so-called emotions are, in the first place, technologically filtered and um, cast. You know, for him, media are not what we use to communicate or express ourselves, but it's exactly the other way around. You know, media make us and unmake us within their kind of networks. That's the writer Tom McCarthy. In many ways, he brings Kittler's ideas to life in his most recent novel, C. I was trying to write a novel all about radio and the early years of radio and um, this idea of, you know, the air suddenly coming alive with, with, with transmission lines and that kind of human consciousness is, is kind of shaped by that. I wanted my hero to be born with radio and kind of to die into radio. And uh, various friends had said, man, you've, you've got to read this book by Kittler and I'd al always put it off because I thought, you know, don't know what some academic thinks about it, you know. <laughs> but, you know, it, they were right. Once Tom McCarthy finished his novel, he read Kittler's book, Gramophone Film Typewriter, and he told me he was pleased to discover something much bigger than an academic take. So Kittler writes at one point in that book, what remains of people is what media can store and communicate. What counts are not the messages or the content with which they equip so-called souls for the duration of a technological era, but rather their circuits, the very schematism of perceptibility. And, and for me, that, that nails it. That absolutely nails it. And that's the basis on which poetry has to proceed, or any literature. When Tom McCarthy went to Berlin for his book, he met some of Kittler's disciples, who famously call themselves the Kittler Youth. They informed him that his project met with their approval. Eventually, he got to speak with the master himself. What struck him most, he says, is how Kittler is able to take his ideas back into the history of literature and apply them where supposedly there is no technology. The wonderful thing about Kittler is, is he, he tracked this back way beyond the 20th or even 19th century, um, back to the Greeks and, and to the idea of, um, you know, kind of transmission lines between the heavens and the earth and, and, and uh, you know, echo and narcissus and, and so on. So this was, this was a really exciting stuff. But this exciting stuff according to Avital Renel, is exactly what got Kittler into trouble with the university, 
a place notoriously defensive and protective about academic boundaries and specializations. He really practiced the uh, politics of contamination. He made Goethe uh, more a matter of, of white noise and technological scratching and popping and, and telecommunicational um, cabling, storage problems, and all sorts of algorithms, that's when the trouble really started brewing. Because um, to take a national monument, an unquestioned icon of, of literary and um, even theoretical gravity and importance, and start retrofitting it and, and re-technologizing things that seem to be pre-technological and therefore pure and untouched, unpolluted, unscathed. That was the scandal, I think, the contamination that occurred. He was a big contaminator. But as much as Kittler's cross-disciplinary raids may have ruffled a few academic feathers, it was his critical analysis of the Nazi war machine, Renell says, that really freaked out the German establishment. I have a feeling that the difficulty of Kittler is that um, we're still not ready to face the disaster and traumatic tremors of WW2, World War II, and Kittler is in your face about it. For example, when Kittler says that wars, starting with World War II and his work on Alan Turing, are a matter of computer fights, that's very shocking because we're still very humanist. We still like to think that it was the great generation, that there's some meaning to um, the sacrifices of, and the body counts. But Kittler shows that um, World War II was decided by um, someone like uh, Alan Turing, who broke the uh, Enigma code. By the way, the... Um, password to get into the party after the funeral was Enigma. When he was a kid, I mean, this is really a really, really weird thing. His, his mother would take him to, to these, on these Baltic holidays to, um, um, to the beach in what's now, East, well, what used to be East Germany. And uh, she would take him to Peenemunde, which is this little island where they did the V2 rocket experiments. And those, you know, V2 rocket experiments were sort of very important in terms of what was going on over over here in terms of the development of the, of the computer. So his his personal history feeds very very um, powerfully into into his intellectual thoughts on these subjects. I think writer Stuart Jeffries penned one of the only English language obits for Kittler in the Guardian. He notes that Kittler's philosophy of media and technology sprung from his analysis of World War II. War drove the research that led to. The computer, you know, what an extraordinary thought. And for Kittler, um, that, that was, a, a, it's, it's a key thing that what happens in, in military technological innovation um, spills over and, and influences uh, what happens in um, the rest of humanity. Kittler's insights into the relationship between war and technology open the doors to dystopian nightmare scenarios like the ones portrayed in the Terminator or Matrix movies. But for Kittler, there is no possibility of triumph over the machines. This is why that scene from Polanski's Carnage is so Kittlerian. 
because when Michael's cell phone goes dead, he goes limp as well. Disconnected from the network, Michael realizes he has no life. This, Stuart Jeffrey says, is what Kittler wants us to understand. Is it the culmination of a kind of um, human decentering project, which, you know, you can trace it back to Copernicus. You know, we, we thought we were at the centre of the world. We aren't. You, you know, you go to Darwin. We, we thought we're the mas- we were the masters of, of, our, of our own species. We're not. And the, and the masters of our in- evolution, we're not. We, we, you look at Freud. We, we thought we were, we were the masters of our thoughts. We, we're actually overrun by unconscious thoughts. So, the, the, in, and, and, and now we think that we're the, we're the, the masters of, a te- of our technological domain, that we control it. And, and uh, he's suggesting, like all these previous thinkers, we're not as powerful, not as, uh, as in control as we thought. At the time of his death, Kittler was still an academic rock star in Germany. But his ideas about the media never took outside his native land. Some say this is because the ideas are too difficult. Others say they're just too German. But according to Avital Ronell, if we truly want to understand our relationship with media and technology, there is just no avoiding Friedrich Kittler. Kittler commands a huge area that connects so much thought from the 18th century to the 21st century. And he, in a sense, reconfigured so much with his work that I have to say that we've only begun to, it's like a big bang temporality. Something happened there that will only arrive and re-determine re, um, our horizons in the future. He swung over to the future, and we can't avoid his work. This episode of Too Much Information is called Four Big Ideas. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with help from Bill Bowen. And it featured Avital Ronell, Tom McCarthy, Stuart Jeffries, Andrew Sims, Madeline Bunting, Ryan Ulrich, Paul Audi, Anne Denise Tunney, Guy DeMann, Emin Butler, Polly Toynbee, Marianne Johnson, and John Gray. Earlier versions of these four segments appeared on a podcast for The Guardian UK called The Big Ideas, and I did those with the help of Francesca Panetta and Philip Olderman. You can find links and more information on the TMI playlist page, and that's where you can subscribe to the TMI podcast. All that and more at WFMU.org.